Good morning, Journey Church. My name is Caitlin, and I will be reading our scripture passage today. It is from Colossians chapter 3, and on page 984 in the Bibles in front of you. If you do not own a Bible, we would really love for you guys to take that Bible home with you as a gift from us. If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil, desire, and covetousness, which is idolatry. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. In these you too once walked when you were living in them, but now you must put them all away, anger, wrath, malice, slander, and obscene talk from your mouth. Do not lie to one another, seeing that you have put off the old self with its practices, and you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge of after the image of its creator. Here there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, Barbarian, Scythian, slave, free, but Christ is all and in all. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Well, thank you, Caitlin. Keep your eyes on Scripture. We're going to look at that together today. So we're in the middle of this book called Colossians, where Paul is writing to a a church that he didn't directly plant but uh, was secondary influence uh, of a guy that he discipled named Epaphras that, that went back to his hometown and planted this church. And these people are trying to figure out how to follow Jesus in the midst of a confusing and chaotic culture. Can anybody relate to a confusing and chaotic culture? Absolutely, we can. And so this, Bible, this, this word is, is, is super um, relevant for us, as is all the scripture. But just wanna, I just want you to be reminded this is written to a people much like you and I, people struggling, people trying to figure it out. And this is written... Uh, to point us to Jesus. That's really the big idea in the book of Colossians is, hey, Jesus. You got a a question? You got a problem? Jesus is the answer. Always dive deeper, more holistically, further into Jesus. It's not add some more stuff to help this Jesus thing along. It's always dive deeper into Jesus. And so um, last week we talked about um, some of the counterfeits to Christianity and how uh, people can slide in with some legalism and some mysticism, right? And some aestheticism and trying to add some rules. And I got a lot of feedback. People really like that sermon. We like when we push back on, on legalism, right? I, I've been there. I, I feel you. Like we, we like whenever we say, yeah, I knew, I knew churches shouldn't be condemning me for that. I knew these people weren't, you know, all these rules. I, I knew it was more than that, right? And, and, and listen, I, I can relate. Like in a lot of ways, I am at the Journey Church because I was fed up with a legalistic church that was focused on the wrong things. Like I sought out a church that was trying to preach the Bible and reach people, right? And so like, I'm, I'm with you on that. I told you the church that I served at years ago and then we got married at, they, they literally had in the bylaws, we could only have three dances at our wedding, right? So like I'm, I'm there. But I think what happens sometimes and can happen in a church like ours is that in a, right, sometimes we can overcorrect when we, but sometimes we can overcorrect. Right? Sometimes we can overcorrect when we say, you know what, it's not supposed to be about these rules, it's supposed to be about this relationship. What can happen, not always, but what can happen is we can have, begin to have a low view of the holiness of God. 
which leads us to have a low view of sin, which leads us to have a pretty high tolerance for sin. Okay? So what can happen whenever we push away from some of the legalism and some of the rules is that we can overcorrect to the other side of the deal where we don't worry about sin and we just get, kind of get comfortable with it, right? So what, I, I'll just put it out there. One of the defining things about our church, if you talk to other people in the community, other churches, oh, that's the alcohol church, right? Because we don't condemn it. Why? Because we preach the Bible. Just throwing that out there. It's not our idea, right? We believe the Bible doesn't condemn alcohol. In general, it doesn't condemn drunken. Right, drunkenness, right? So we don't get drunk, but alcohol can be a good gift used rightly in moderation, right? And so we preach that, well, that's got us a reputation at times, right? Like I've heard some really wacky things. Like people, I'm not kidding, another pastor from the church thought that we handed it out when y'all came in, like we had a cooler of coors. You just got one when you came in. Like seriously, they thought that. I was like, come on, really? No, that's not a defining thing. But because we don't condemn it, Right? There are times whenever we go, oh, yeah, well, we're the free church. And we, and we talk a lot. We say almost every service, hey, this is the journey is a place for flawed and perfect people. Right? We're not here because we got it all together. We're here because we need Jesus. And if we're not careful, that can, can lead to an abuse of grace. Right? During the Reformation, if you know the story, um, I, I think it was Luther was confronted by one of the, one of the, the priests. Says, like, you can't preach this stuff. You can't pre- if you preach that grace, people will do whatever they want. Like you can't preach that, that, that you know, salvation isn't by works alone. Otherwise, people will do whatever they want. And, and that's not untrue. But all of that is actually indicative of us having a wrong and, and low, like low understand, a low view and a wrong understanding of grace. In Romans 6, Paul says, hey, should we just keep sinning so that grace can abound all the more? By no means. By no means. So what do we do? Because we have to have, like, we have to have an, a hatred for sin. We have to have a working against it. But we don't want to start justifying ourselves by the laws that we bring in. And so it, it's so important to keep all of this in context. Because in the same book, in the same exhortation to the same people, Paul is going to move now to, yeah, you don't get your salvation. You don't get your justification, at least, through laws, right? Through legalism. You don't earn, what I mean by that, if you weren't here last week, is you don't earn favor with God by fulfilling some rules and, and following a law. We're all condemned. We all fall short. We need a Savior. His name is Jesus. Okay? And so with that, Paul is going to now move and, and, and say, okay, if, he's going to say in, in verse 1 of chapter 3, if then you have been raised with Christ, notice it, it doesn't just say if then Christ has been raised, it makes it more personal and more specific to you, doesn't it? If then you have been raised with Christ, right? So you need to ask that question as we've sort of done throughout this. Like we, we want to take a close look at, at, at salvation and not think of it as just this general thing that we get to claim we're a Christian because we prayed some prayer. Like is there evidence of faith? Is there evidence of the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Because if so, you have been raised with Christ, meaning you are united with him in both his death and burial and his resurrection. I'll point you back to a sermon from three or four weeks ago where Darren talked us through, Derek talked us through the, the union with Christ. All right, so Paul says, if you have been raised with Christ, and if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, then, then that is true of you. You are united with him. It, this, these things have happened. This is, not, this is not a sermon about how you get there. Right? This is a sermon about once you are, if you've confessed Jesus and, and received him as your Savior, 
now bringing your behavior in line with that reality. The sermon's called Be Killing Sin or It Will Be Killing You, which is taken from a famous John Owen passage, a Puritan writer who, who talked about this and, and wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin, which I've linked in your um, digital bulletin on your app if you'd like to grab a copy. It's a very small book, and it's been abridged and, and uh, written into modern language for us to understand easily, and it is a pretty quick read, but it is a very powerful read. So I'd encourage you to check that out. But he says, be killing sin, or it will be killing you. And we see that in verse 5. Paul is going to tell us to put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. And, and that language right there, put to death, you need to hear that because that's what he says to do with our sin. So how many of you have tried to manage your sin? How's that going for you? How many of you have just tried to put your sin on a leash? Or, or, or maybe in a, in a kennel, right? Put it in a cage. What does Paul say? He says, put to death. That is violent murderous language. What he means is we should have no tolerance for sin in our life. We, we hate it, right? And so what the priest said to Luther was not all that wrong. If you preach this, people will do what they want. Well, that's true because in the gospel, our want-tos are changed. In the gospel, our hearts are changed. The Bible says in Ezekiel 36 that he will take out our heart of stone, and if you didn't know that outside of Jesus, you got a heart of stone. You can't change it with no matter how many rules, how many do-gooders, how, how many moral standards and books you read, it's still a heart of stone. But by, Ezekiel says, I'm going to take out the heart of stone, I'm going to put in a heart of flesh. And in that heart is written my laws, and in that will be a desire for my people to follow my ways. So we have this, in our new birth, we have a new heart. But it is, a, it is one that's going to be struggling against the old desires, against the old flesh. So it, it is one that, that creates war, all right? So we get this tension because our salvation, our justification is created by Christ alone and received through faith alone, amen? But our sanctification, which is actually part of our salvation, has a participatory nature to it, meaning we work with the Holy Spirit, and with God to increase in our Christ-likeness. So we've said this before. We want to you know, wrap this in context again. In justification means we have been saved from the penalty of our sins. What that means is you're a sinner, I'm a sinner, we're all sinners. You say, well, you don't know me. Well, I, I read the Bible and it says you're a sinner and like that's just, that's the truth and whether you want to believe it or not, you'll get there eventually. I'm a sinner, you're a sinner, doesn't matter what kind of sin it is, we're all deserving of the wrath of God and of death. The only way to salvation is to trust Jesus, to cry out to him. Romans 10 says, if, if we <clears throat> confess with our mouth and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, then he, we shall be saved. That means if you realize you're a sinner and that you need a savior, you confess that Jesus is that savior, and you say, Jesus, have mercy on me, I'm in. I, you're the Lord, you've got control of my life. He says, you'll be saved. You'll be born again, and in that moment, your sins are washed away. Isaiah says, though they may, you may be as red as scarlet, you may be filthy beyond what anybody would ever know, and if people knew, they would not even know how to look at you. That may be true of you. If people saw your web browser history, if people knew what had happened to you as a kid, if people knew what you have done, they might not even be able to make eye contact with you, but he says, they may be, white, they may be red as scarlet, but come. Come, let's reason together, because in Jesus, he says, I'll make them white as snow. White as snow. 
And that's salvation. That's, that's justification. So when we receive Jesus, we are justified. No longer to be held accountable for the penalty of our sin. Okay? So we have been saved. If you're in Jesus, that's past tense. You have been saved from the penalty of sin. But now we are being saved. Paul will use that language in other places that we are being saved. What does that mean? It means we are being saved from the power of sin. That's progressive sanctification. What does that mean? It means we're becoming more like Jesus. You hear that, you know that, okay, I gotta grow, but do we think about it in this active sense? There's this verse that trips everybody up. It says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. It freaks everybody out. I didn't think I was supposed to work it out. I thought I was supposed to receive it, right? Well, listen, you receive your justification by faith alone. We work out our salvation in participation with the Spirit, meaning sanctification is an increase, it's a part of our salvation, you understand that? We are being saved from the power of sin. That the more we work with the Spirit, the more we surrender our, our sin, the, the greater degrees of salvation we experience. Do you understand that? Like that? And so that sort of puts some flesh around that. What does it mean to work out your salvation? It means we are working with him. We are, we are bringing our sin to the cross perpetually and continually, and as we're going to see, putting it to death. All right? So we are being saved from the power of sin, and then one day, glory to God, we will be saved from the presence of sin. So we have been saved from the penalty. We are being saved from the power. And one day, when Jesus comes back, we will all be saved from the presence of sin, fully and finally and wholly. Amen? Okay, so what do we do with this in the moment? Right? What do we do? So Paul says, okay, if you have been raised with Christ, this whole section, 1 through 17, is going to say, okay, now because of that, there's some things that you need to put off, and there are some things you need to put on. We're going to get to the put on next week. Today, we're going to talk about put off. So there is this active participation that we have now, not to earn our salvation, but to, to bring it in line with what is already objectively true, the struggle with our sin, the struggle with our flesh. We, we, we work with the Spirit to bring it in line and under the rule and reign of Jesus Christ, right? He, he tells us to pray that his kingdom would come his will would be done. That, that's personal and a corporate prayer, like increasingly in our lives that the kingdom would come and take more and more ground and we would look more and more like Jesus. Second Corinthians 3 says this is going to happen uh, one degree at a time. Sometimes it's painfully slow, but that is what we're called to do. So he's going to tell us in verses 5 through uh, 10 or so, it's going to be some real active, strong words about putting our sin to death. And if I'm honest, I was really excited to just talk to you about how you do that aggressively, put sin to death, the things you do, like, and, and we will talk a little bit about that. But it's so important to keep in mind the context here because the whole context of, of the Colossian uh, letter is about Jesus being supreme and looking to him for all things. The specific context of, of here has been uh, verse, verse, or chapter 2 started out with, hey, just like you received Christ, keep walking in him. Meaning you received him by faith, your sins are forgiven. Don't now move on to other things. Keep walking that out. Okay, so this is still that context. How do we do that? In the specific context of, of chapter 3, here 1 through 17, it's going to begin and it's going to end with identity. It's going to begin and end with who we are in Christ. So yes, there are some active things that we have to do to kill sin, but there, we have to start, because if we, if we just start there, we end up with legalism. We end up with rules, rules we got to do. But if we, if we start 
with who we are, that gets at the root. That it gets at the root of our sin, that the root of our issues, of our insecurities, of our fears, of our desires that drive us to all these other sins. So what Paul says then, if you've been raised with Christ, we're back at verse one, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things of the earth. So right here, the first thing we're going to need to do if we're going to kill sin in our life is we have to change our mindset. We have to change our view, if you will. It says, set your minds. That's, that's a mindset. That's a worldview. How do you see things? And what does Paul say? He says, listen, you no longer live, right? Verse 3, for you have died and your life is hidden with Christ on high, with Christ who is your life and when he appears, you'll be with him in glory. He's, he's talked about that earlier in, the, in, ver, in chapter 2, how we don't live in the world anymore. We live as citizens of Jesus' kingdom, so we have to change our mindset. Here's the deal. You have grown up in a world that has taught you how to think and what to think. Now, it wasn't always called how to think and what to think 101. It's more subversive than that, isn't it? You understand how you became to, to, you know, have the mindset and the worldview that you do? It was, it was not super intentional for most of us. It was, it was subversive, and it happened indirectly as we observed the culture. So the world has taught you what is valued. The world has taught you what you should, what you should seek, what will bring you happiness, right? If, you, if you're still not tracking with me, just think about that. How did you learn what you know, what type of person was attractive? How'd you learn that? You just, you just observed, right? Who, who got celebrated in class? Who, who was sought after? Who got vote? Like who the most people were talking about? How did you learn what, what was, you know, most popular in school? How did you learn what the world valued? You saw who got cheered on. You saw who was, was most popular and you thought, okay, that's the value then. Whether that's like tall, dark, and handsome, whether that's having money, whether that's being athletic, you see these things and, and our minds are formed, right? And we begin to chase them and we begin to identify ourselves based on that, don't we? we, we it doesn't matter what, what like um, time in history you come to, it's going to look different, but the root of it is still the same. We try to identify ourselves by something externally. Well, who are you? How do you answer that question? How do you answer that question? You start with what you do, your job. Well, I'm a, I'm a pastor, right? Or I'm a, I'm a salesman, or I, I work in the trades, or I'm a firefighter, or I, I own my own business, right? Is that how you start? Or I, I'm a, maybe it's I'm a father, maybe I'm a, I'm a husband. Maybe, you know, like I, we, we define ourselves by something externally. And when that happens, now that set of values sets our minds in a certain places. It sets our minds toward pursuing certain things. And Paul says, listen, you have been radically changed. In 2 Corinthians, he's gonna, he tells them, he says, listen, when you're in Christ, all the old things have passed away and all things have become new. And here he says, if you've been raised with Christ, no longer are you to seek the things of earth. Set your mind on the things above. So the first thing we have to do is change our mindset. We have to look, look at things through the lens of the, of the kingdom of heaven. What does he say is valued? What does he say we should pursue? What does he say brings our identity? What does he say we should hope in? 
And we have to start there by changing our mindset. And that's going to mean actively identifying and repenting of the other ways that we have been shaped. But we have to start by setting our minds on the things that are above. And that, it, that sounds just super spiritual. And that we have to just be people who are talking about what it's going to be like when we get to heaven and we're floating on harps and our baby diapers, right? Or floating on clouds with our harps and our baby diapers, right? It's a weird thing like that. We don't know what to think about when we say set our minds on things above. What that means is that's where Jesus is. He is above. He is there. And he rules and he reigns right now. Currently, he's on the throne. And he makes the laws. He makes the rules and he sets the values. And we are now his. We are united with him for in Christ Jesus. And so we look at things through his lens. We have to start there. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ on high. That's an identity thing, right? Our lives are now hidden with Christ. Right? That means nobody's going to be able to get to them. Nobody's going to be able to rob us of them. It's, it's not fully in view yet because he's, you know, he's, he's not here presently. It's this reality of already but not yet. But our lives are secure there. It says the Spirit is sent to us as a deposit to hold firm and fast and sealed until that day when, when it's all brought to fruition. So, Verse four, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So what that means is we're headed toward a day when that reality of his kingdom and his glory will be our reality. So we should start living his standards and his glory now. So we have no tolerance for sin. What's what Paul says? Then put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you. Put to death what is earthly in you. So this is where, like, we get into this active participation of what Christ has called us to do in our sanctification. He says, put it to death. Okay, how are we going to do that? Well, we're going to walk through the rest of this passage, but I want you to be thinking about your own sin. He's going to list a few. But for us to really enter into this, you need to be thinking about what sins have you allowed to remain? What sins have you gotten comfortable with? Right? And maybe you've like backed off. Right? Maybe you don't indulge quite the way you used to, but you're still content with the root. You, you need to be, because what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to see that in order to put sin to death, we need to first admit it. Admit that it is there. Right, so we're going we're, we're gonna to do that as we walk through this. I want you to be thinking personally, what is that for me? What does it look like that, that I've allowed sin to remain in my life? And then secondly, we're going we're gonna to seek to see it the way that God sees it. See our sin the way that God sees our sin. There's twofold to that. And then we're going to, once we've done those things, now we're going to seek to kill it. Right? We're going to talk about how do we do that? How do we actually um, do that? So, Put to death, therefore, he says in verse 5, what is earthly in you? And he's going to list off some things. The first several are going to have to do with sexual immorality, sexual impurity, right? So he just says sexual immorality. That's sort of this junk drawer term that uh, we get our word uh, pornea, right? Por pornography. Like, and it's not just, you know, having sex outside of marriage. It's not just this particular thing. Parents, sorry. There's some kids in here. You might have some conversations later. Good luck. Let me know if you need help, right? But it's the Bible. Sorry. Um, sorry, not sorry. Uh, but sexual morality, right? It says, put that to death. And then it goes on to say impurity, right? So the, the world has told you how to think about sexual immorality. The world's told you how to think about sex in general, hasn't it? 
right? It's not that big a deal. Like, do what you want. Go ahead and sleep with him. Go ahead and do this. Go ahead and, and dress that way. Go ahead and, 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 you know, live that way. The world has taught us how to live. Paul says, no, no, there should be no hint of that, no hint of tolerating sexual immorality or impurity in our lives. We, we have to get rid of it. You say, well, I just look at it. I just watch some movies every now and then. I just, I like to watch this to spice up my marriage. No, 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 no hint of it. No hint of it. Put it to death. He goes on to say passion. And that's not just, I mean, we might have different things when we think about passion. What he's talking about is like, don't be led by your gut. Like don't be led by just emotions, right? And things that, that just, you know, sort of grab you and, and, and you're led in that direction without thinking about it, without discipline. Don't, you have to put that to death. An evil desire and covetousness. I mean, that's an interesting one, right? We sort of put covetousness as, as this, that's a, like if we got a sin, coveting is a pretty safe sin, doesn't it? It feels like it. If you don't know what it is, it's, it's, it's basically, you know, desiring some, what somebody else has, right? But, but if you think about what, you, let's, let's stop. Let's just take a look at coveting. So what we're doing whenever we say, man, I wish I had what they had. What we're doing is not only beginning to just destroy our horizontal relationships with that brother or that sister, but we're actually bringing an indictment on God, saying that he hasn't done what we think he should do in our own life. We're saying that we think we, we should be entitled to have this or have that, right? And that could be, man, I wish I had that person's spouse, or I wish I had that person's car, or I wish I had their job, or like that kind of money, or their house, right? Their relationships, man, they're really connected. I wish I was in their group, or I wish I had their friends, right? So yeah, there's some horizontal issues there from person to person, but there's also a vertical issue where we're condemning God for not, we're saying, God, you haven't done what I think you should have done with my life. Let me tell you how you're wrong, and let me tell you what you should be doing. I need that if I'm going to be happy. I need that, right? And it leads to this condemnation, this bitterness between us and the Lord. If you're ever, I heard another pastor teaching on this passage, and he said, listen, if you're ever tempted to think that, that you aren't getting what you deserve from God. Let me just encourage you that you're right. But it's probably not quite in the way that you think that you're right. You understand? Because here, here's what you deserve. Here's what I deserve. Hell and his wrath forever. Period. Kicked out of his presence. No platform. No place with which to stand and plead. No. Done. We have no right to stand before God. We have, like, what we deserve from him is nothing more and nothing less than hell itself. So, yeah, you're not getting what you deserve, and that should lead us to worship. Amen? That should lead us to, to be full of praise and glory. And so we have to guard against covetousness because it's going to put a barrier between us and the Lord. It's not in line with our new life, right? We've been given all things right? Through Christ. We, we have access to all things through Christ. And so we don't covet anymore. We are content. Paul says, I've learned the secret to be content. Whether I have little or whether I have a lot, I've learned the secret. And that is Christ is all and in all in my own life, right? In my own life. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's been hijacked by athletes. What he's talking about is learning to suffer or learning to prosper. I can do all things. I can either lose it all or I can gain it all, and either way, I'll stay content because my identity is in Jesus, right? So covetousness actually leads to a lot of other things that are issues, right? So we're, we're wrong to sort of, you know, dismiss that as a nice little friendly sin that maybe we can have because he says all of these things are actually idolatry. All of these things are idolatry. 
We talked about it last week where we can't, like, rules and these different things, they have no power to subdue the flesh. Right? Why? Because our struggle with sin is actually a worship struggle. That anytime we sin, we're actually not believing the promises of God in some way. That whatever sin we enter into, we got there because we are, are failing to believe in the goodness of God in some way, in specific way in our life that led us to that sin. Right? So he says, when you do these things, it's actually idolatry. Right? So we don't, think, we don't have little statues and you know, we're not slaughtering animals to our little gods in different temples here in America. But listen, people from other cultures can spot our idols. It's easy, right? Sex, that's an idol, for sure. Look, watch a commercial or you know, like 30 seconds of TV, right? You'll see that. My kids like, can't even watch like, a friendly kids YouTube video because the ads on there are just like for Temptation Island and some nonsense. I'm like, whoa, 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 my kids don't need to see that nonsense, right? Like, but, but that's the reality, why? Because that's a God in our culture. And how do you worship it? You, 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 get, you get that, right? You, you give yourself away. You dress a certain way, right? You attract a certain person. You live a certain lifestyle. We, we think about even, even the sins of like cohabitation and living. Like that's, we're, we're building an idol in that moment, right? And saying, this is my God. I'm giving myself to it, right? Sex is, is, becomes a God. Like that is idolatry. Passion, evil desire, Covetousness, like we're, we're putting something else in the place of God, meaning, right, maybe we don't worship it, we didn't come to church to sing songs to fill in the blank, but we've allowed it to be the thing that we think will fulfill us. We've allowed it to be the thing that we think will actually save us. And that is often informed by our fear of what hell would actually look like. If you want to find your idols, start by asking the question, of what, if what, if taken from me, would make my life not worth living? Okay, you need to ask yourself that question. If I lost blank, I wouldn't have, my life wouldn't be worth living anymore. Right? Maybe that's your family, maybe that's your, your job, maybe that's possessions. Because when that is what drives us, man, if, if I end up here, if I end up alone, if I end up poor, if I end up ugly, if I end up, you know, with no friends on Instagram, like whatever, if I end up with no likes, if I put myself out there on Instagram and nobody likes it, like whatever, right? Like if, if that happens to me that I won't know how to live anymore, well, that now, now you're seeing your idol. So what do we do when we have that, that, that hell, that, that functional hell for us? I could never, I could never go on if this happened. Now we're going to look for a functional savior. How do I avoid this hell? All right, I need to make sure that I got this. I need to make sure I look this way. I need to make sure I have these clothes. I need to make sure I have these friends. I need to make sure I have this salary, right? You see how this works? Paul says, put it to death. Put it to death. Not even a hint of it. On account of these, and here's why. On account of these, the wrath of God is coming. Right? So we know we've been saved from our sins, but we just, we get too friendly and, and acquainted with them where we don't realize, hey, because of these things that we just listed, that's why the wrath of God is coming. Like, he's going to come one day, and he's not just going to be like, all right, you know what? I know, you, you know, like, we get a pass there. No, sin will be dealt with fully. And in fact, that is exactly what he endured on the cross was the full wrath of God for our sin. So, so we don't get to just passively ride it off as no big, no, no big deal. He says, on account of these things, the wrath of God is coming. We don't want to be a people who claim the name of God but keep participating in these sins over and over and over again. 
when he shows up. We don't, we don't want to be found there. Verse 7, in these you too once walked when you were living in them. Paul says that, that was a part of your former life. Your former worldview, your former value system, that's how you lived. I understand that, but no longer do you live that way. But now, he says, verse 8, you must put them all away. Put them all away. Anger. How many of you struggle with anger? I think you could probably string these together from covetousness to anger and then how it leads all the way down to slander and malice, right? Because what happens when we are trying to find our value in something else, something externally, that's, that leads us to covet, doesn't it? When we're trying to find our value and our identity in something external, man, wanting what somebody else has now is a real short line. Man, if I just had that, then I'd be content. Now when I don't get that, now I'm angry, aren't I? Now I'm angry. And I'm not just angry at God, I'm angry at those people. What does anger lead to? Anger leads to malice. What is malice? That's where I want to hurt them. I want to bring harm to these people, right? I want to bring harm to them. Matt Chandler fleshed this out. It's like, this is how this progression goes. But, but we're not psychopaths, so we're not just going to walk up and punch them in the throat. How are we going to bring harm to them? Slander. Slander. It's easy, isn't it? It's easy to take away from them. It's easy to cut someone down. Right? You hear somebody talking about how great somebody is? Yeah, but I mean, you know, I don't know if you know, but he's been divorced a few times and this is that. You know what I mean? We start cutting people down. Or, or hey, did you know so-and-so? Did you see that? Did you hear about that? Did you hear about what's going on in their family? Did you hear about what she did? Did you see that outfit? Did you see how she looked? Right? I, I mean, it's funny, but no, it's not. It's slander, right? We start to cut people down. That's how we bring harm to them, Right? And then obscene talk comes out of your mouth. And we're, we just kind of think cursing, right? We think of the four-letter words. I, I, it's, that's really not what this is about. Culturally, it's about like speaking curses over people. And, that, and then we still, now we're thinking witchcraft. Just think this. You understand, somebody does punch you in the, in the, in the throat. You're gonna, you can recover from that. But there are things that people have said that, will, that have haunted you and you'll still struggle with the rest of your life. You understand what I'm saying? There are words and, and phrases and things that have been said, uh, can be said about you that can cripple you and haunt you the rest of your life. And that's where we get to if we, end, if we stay in this pattern of seeking our identity, seeking our worth in horizontal and external things. Paul says, got to put them away. You got to put them away. Otherwise, this is where this leads to. Don't, don't lie to one another, he says in verse 9, seeing that you put off the old self with its practices and put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge of its image of its creator. And we're going we're gonna to touch on verse 9 and 10 again next week. It's going to get fleshed out more. But I want to go to verse 11 because he says here, there is neither Greek and Jew. There's not Greek and Jew. There's not circumcised and uncircumcised. There's not barbarian and Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all and in all. So our struggle that we so violently struggle against with external validation, right? Getting our identity from somewhere else. Paul says it's, it's, it's in vain because your identity, your worth has already been declared in Christ. There is not Greek and Jew here, right? You're not defined by your ethnicity or your skin color or where you came from. It, it doesn't exist here. There is not educated and uneducated. There is not religious and, and irreligious. There's not clean and unclean. None of that exists here. I don't care where you came from. I don't care what your story is, whether you've been in prison, whether your family was addicts. It doesn't matter. 
I adopted a little kid out of drug. And I heard the other day, somebody in the court system says, well, that's good that they're going to be with a good family, but how are they going to get that last name out of them? And I said, Jesus Jesus Christ gets his name out of, gets that mess out of him, right? This new life. He's in our home. He bears my name now. Right? So it doesn't matter what your history is. It doesn't matter what defines you before. It doesn't matter what you still struggle to be defined by because here, it doesn't matter educated, not educated, college degree, not even a high school diploma. It doesn't matter. Christ is in all and is all. When we get that, now we can put sin to death. We sever the root of what drives us to sin. When we understand our identity is, is, is firmly, forever held in Christ. Because here's the deal. Yeah, I'm a pastor. Yeah, I'm a father. Yeah, I'm a husband. But if I get fired today and something tragic happens to my family, my identity doesn't change. My heart's going to be broken. I'm going to need some time to recover. Like, it's going to be hard. But who I am doesn't change. When we realize that we are a child of God, that we have been purchased and redeemed by the King of Kings and stamped with his name, forever sealed for his kingdom, one day looking forward to the day when we will stand with him and our lust and our struggles and everything that has defined us will lay at our feet in defeat. When we realize that, and it can never be taken from us. Now we have power. Now we have access to the power that is the resurrection in Christ Jesus. And now we can put sin to death. So, let's get personal. What is that for you? What are you still allowing to sort of linger in your life? You know you should put it to death, but you've sort of held on to it as a pet. In the article that I, uh, that I linked for you, it, it uh, references a, a C.S. Lewis um, <clears throat> excerpt from The Great Divorce called The Lizard Upon the Shoulder. I should have just listened to a little bit of this. In the book, the ghost uh, who has been kept out of heaven tries to keep his pet sin, which is depicted by a red lizard. And in the scene, the ghost constantly scolds the pet upon his shoulder. And an angel asks the ghost if he'd like the lizard silenced. Right? So you, you see the scene. He's kicked out of heaven, but, but he wants to keep this pet sin, right, which is depicted by the lizard, but he's always fussing with it. Shh, shh, right? Shut up. Like, people are around, right? And the angel comes up and says, hey, you want, me to, you want me to shut that up? He says, well, of course I would. The angel says, all right, then I'll kill him. And he <laughs> takes a step forward. Hey, ah, ah, wait, look out. Look, you're burning me. Keep away. So the ghost says, and, and the angel says, well, well, don't you want him killed? Well, you didn't say anything about killing him at first. I mean, I hardly mean to bother you with anything as drastic as that. The angel says, well, it's, it's the only way. Whose burning hands were now very close to the lizard. He says, shall I kill it? And he says, well, well, well uh, there's time to discuss that later. Right? Like, we, we, we can talk about that later. Right now, I just want him to be quiet. Right? And he says, no, there's no time. May I kill it? Please, I never meant to be such a nuisance. Please, really, really don't bother. Look, it's, it's gone to sleep of its own accord. I'm sure it'll be all right. For, it just, just, you know, thanks ever so much. He says, may I kill it? Honestly, I don't think that there's the slightest necessity for that. Have you had this struggle with your own sin? Like, you don't have to really get rid of it, right? I don't think there's, it's necessary. I'm sure I'll be able to keep it in order now. You thought, yourself, you thought that true about your sin? I'll be able to keep it in order. 
I think the gradual process would be far better than killing it. I, I heard, I, don't, I, didn't, I didn't research to see if it was true, but I heard that a, a fairly prominent pastor was telling people to, to go ahead and keep sinning to gradually like stop sinning. Like, so you want to stop sinning like you sin five times a week, go ahead and aim to sin four times a week. No, not like, nope. The gradual, pro- but it seems to make sense, right? The gradual process is of no use at all. He says more excuses are given. And then we overhear the lizard whispering in his ear. The lizard says this, be careful. He can do what he says. He can kill me. One fatal word from you and he will. And then you'll be without me forever and ever. That's not natural. How could you live? I mean, you'd, you'd only be a sort of a ghost, not a real man as you are now. He doesn't understand. He's only a cold, bloodless, abstract thing. It may be natural for him, but it isn't for us. Yeah, I, I know there's no real pleasures now, only dreams, but aren't they better than nothing? And I'll be good. That's why our sin tells us I'll be good. I admit that I, I've sometimes gone too far in the past, but I promise I won't do it again. I'll give you nothing but really nice dreams, all sweet and fresh, almost innocent, and you might say quite innocent. That's the language of sin in our head that we wrestle with and struggle with. I encourage you to read the whole article. But sometimes we get too comfortable with sin and we don't hate it. So if we're going to kill it, we need to first admit that it's there. Admit that it's there. And then secondly, we're going we're, we're to strive to see it the way that God sees it. So do you see your sin the way that God sees your sin? Because the world has taught you how to see your sin. And for most of us, our sins that we struggle with, they're not that big a deal. Like we see certain sins as a really bad deal, right? Drunkenness, adultery, like, you know, drug addiction, those sorts of things, those are really bad. Like we kind of cringe at those. But, you know, covetousness and, and lust and a little bit of this, a little bit of greed, a little bit of gluttony, yeah, not that big a deal, right? And we sort of, we sort of give them permission to hang around. But do you see your sin as the glory of God that is not being honored? Do you see your sin as the holiness of God that is not being referenced? Do you see your sin as what put Jesus on the cross? Do you see your sin as the greatness of God not being admired? Do you see your sin as the power of God not being praised? Do you see your sin as the truth of God not being sought? Over and over again, we need to look at our sin with the holiness of God, and that will lead us to rightly view our sin as something that cannot be tolerated, something that we can't keep as a pet. That's as foolish as the, the you know, the, those, those, what was that, the, the lion people, or the big cat, whatever those, there was all sorts of, when the, when the pandemic started, there was the whole uh, Joe exotic guy. Anyway, yeah, it's as foolish as thinking you could just raise a little, you know, little kitten, you know, as a pet. That thing grows up to be a, a flipping lion or a tiger, all it knows how to do is kill and eat, right? So then we're shocked when it kills and eats somebody. Like, no, that's what it's supposed to do. We don't get to keep sin in our life as a little pet thing. No, it's just we don't play around with that. He says, kill it, put it to death, drag it out into the open and put it to death. So that's what we're going to look at just briefly. How do we do that, right? So first, we have to see it the way God does, which means it is an offense against the holy God that deserves hell. Because we committed it, we deserve hell. When we see it rightly, we will have no tolerance for it to remain in our life in any varying degree. But we don't just see it rightly in in its offensiveness. We also need to see it rightly in its current state, which means it's pardoned. Because for some of you, you have a really good view, an acute view of how horrible your sin is. And that's actually what keeps you enslaved. 
Because you're defined by how horrible you are because of that sin. Some of you need to stop playing around with your sin and realize it's an egregious offense to a holy God. Others of you need to look at your sin and realize that on the cross, Jesus says, forgiven, pardon, no longer held against you. Because you're not going to put it to death. You're not going to gain victory over it as long as that guilt is gripping your heart. So you need to realize that you're pardoned. You need to see it as God sees it, which is an offense of the holiness of God, which deserves hell, but also in Christ Jesus, because of the blood of Jesus, it is pardoned. It's removed. It's not just a joke. It's not just a nice saying that it's removed as far as east is from the west. It's removed. It's gone. Propitiation, absorbed, expiation, taken away. You need to know that. And then, now that we've seen it, now we, we've, we admit it, we see it how God sees it, now we kill it. We kill it. We, we, we absolutely kill it. Jesus says in Matthew that if your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if, so if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. So you could, you, what, what, Jesus is talking about drastic measures here. So if there is a sin that lingers in your life really strongly, you need to take drastic measures to kill it. Jesus says, like, he's not actually talking about harming yourself, just so you know. Right? But what he's talking about is, being, is, is going hard after your sin. Meaning, no longer do you just sort of entertain it and think that you'll manage it. You drag that thing out into the light. You drag it out. And into the light, I mean you're confessing it before God and some of your people. We talk about community groups the last few weeks. You need to be in community, and you need to drag your pet sin. You need to drag your perpetual struggling, nagging sins into the light of community and say, this is my sin. Let's kill this thing together, and then just collectively we just beat the snot out of it. If you got guns, we're just unloading our clips into it, right? We're just going nuts on that sin until we can't even recognize it anymore. We're just, all that we got, we pour into it, right? Because this is not something to be played with. This is not something that we can just leash and cage and entertain. No, no, no. It will kill somebody. It will harm you. So you put it to death. Put it to death. How do you do that? I, honestly, you bring it before the Lord, but you have to bring community in. It says that in, like, darkness hates the light. But you bring that into light, and it loses its power, and, and it, we're able to make progress on it. So you got to bring it into light. Confession before the Lord, but also with one another. So you need to get in community. You need to say, I'm struggling with this. I need help. Let's take this out together and whip the snot out of it, whip the life out of it. Put it to death. Okay? Romans 13, 14 says... <clears throat> Make no provision for the flesh. Put on the Lord Jesus and make no provision for the flesh to gratify his desires. And, and you got to think about that one a little bit. How do you, how do you make provisions for the flesh? Well, I, I, I'll give you an example of how I do that. This is not a sin, but it's, it's a vice of mine, if you will. I know Some of y'all know I love chocolate chip cookies, like a lot. And my favorite are the Nestle Toll House break-aparts. That's just my jam, right? And, and I love them. My wife makes some really great cookies, and I like those when they're hot. But this is my thing. And so literally every night, and my mom, I did this when I was a kid too, but literally every night I crave those. And I, listen, I run and exercise so that I can eat those. I'm not kidding. That's why I exercise and why I run, so I can eat those and not look, you know, foolish. So that, that's it. That, that's, that's, that's my motivation. So I love those things. And guess what? I make provisions for those things. Because you know what? We shop primarily at Aldi and Sam's, and they, neither one of them sells that particular brand. So you know what? Sometimes we've got to go to Target or Kroger. Guess what? I'm always volunteering to do that. 
right? I'll get whatever mama needs, but I'm going to get a couple back because break aparts too, right? And you know what? I only cook them after my kids have gone to sleep because I don't want to share. <laughs> I used to eat 12 a night. I've gone down to eight. It's in a big old glass of milk. That's how I roll. So I make provisions for that. I will drive by Kroger and I'll think, do I got any cookies at home? If not, I'm going to swing in here real quick, right? That's just how, that, like that. That's, so I make provisions for the, some of, listen, we do the same thing with our pet sins, right? Some of you have confessed and repented of adultery or pornography, but you're still entertaining sensual images. You're still entertaining that sort of sin in your life. Yeah, it's not the degree that you had, but you're still making provisions. I remember the struggle. I remember whenever I, I was struggling with that sin. I remember where I, I, my wife thought that I was walking in purity, but we would watch something together, and I would close my eyes and turn away, but I made a note in my head of where I could go back and watch that because we've already watched it, so it won't show up on the Netflix as something I watched. This is the wickedness of my heart, and I know I'm not alone. I made provisions for the flesh. I can go back and watch. Like, that's how wicked our hearts are. And if I'm, if I'm the only one, then sorry, that's just, but I'm not. That's how wicked our heart is, how we work. We make provisions for the flesh. So what do we got to do? We got to bring all that to light. You can't just confess that you're struggling with that particular sin. You have to say, this is how I struggle. This is when I struggle. I can't be trusted with this. You're an alcoholic. You might not be able to have your own keys, right? You can't go to this place. You can't be trusted. You might need to say, hey, I'm going to the store. I need you to check my car when I come back. I don't know what it is, but you have to kill that sin. Drag it all into the light. Lay it all out there and say, I can't be trusted, and I don't want this to kill me, so I'm going to kill it. So for me, it was not just confession, right? I had to fully surrender the rights to my own TV. I can't log in and watch it unless my wife's there. Like, it sounds like a child, right? But 10 years ago, this was me. I can't watch it unless they're there. Like, I, I, I don't have access. Like, everything I, I, I click on on here goes in a report to my wife and somebody else on a accountability report. Like I have to surrender my rights, put it all out in the light. That's how we kill sin. We, we, we bring it into the light. We make aggressive moves to get rid of it. And then we make no provisions for us to ever go back. We got to be honest about those provisions. Your heart is wicked. You got to let somebody in. You got to let the Lord in and you got to let some community in. Lest we latch onto that and think again, we're going back to rules. Let's remember. Verse one says, if then you've been raised with Christ, we seek the things that are above where Christ is. Verse three, or verse four says, when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. What does that mean? Even the sins you're struggling with right now don't define you. When the Father looks down upon you, he doesn't see some future version of you that he's in love with. He knows you're a sinful, struggling person who's, who's battling against that sin. Your new heart wants to obey him, but you're struggling with the flesh. He knows that, and he sees you for that. But you know what he actually sees? He sees the righteousness of Christ. When he looks upon you, he sees the righteousness of Christ. Matt Chandler says he's not in love with some future version of you. He's in, he's in love with you right now, and he sees the righteousness of Christ. 
So his invitation, his imperative, his command there to kill sin is an invitation to life. It's an invitation to bring your behavior in line with what is objectively true in Christ. That you are forgiven, you are made new, and you are holy and righteous because of him. So we get to bring our behavior in line. And in that, we get to experience more of our salvation. Because each degree of glory we get closer to Christ is one degree of glory of freedom, of joy, and fruit of the Spirit that we gain. And that leads us to enjoy life more. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. John Owen famously said, listen, we can't play around with lingering, nagging pet sins in our life. Let's pray. God, you have to do this work. No mere man, no amount of yelling uh, will, will convince fallen and fearful sinners that we must confess our darkest secrets in order to be saved. No uh, mere just sermon can, can lead us to this place of, of recognizing that you are a good God who is trustworthy and worthy of our full repentance and full disclosure. So I ask that your spirit would do that work today. Father, I believe there are people here that are enslaved to sin. And they're terrified to admit it. So instead, they're convinced that managing it is the right way. Father, I pray you would send your spirit to give them faith, to reveal grace to them so that they can come. The old hymn says, if we tarry till we're ready, we'll never come at all. May we just come and bring ourselves to you, Lord. Give us the faith to do that. Father, there, there are people here who have been Christians for years who are still enslaved to sin and not even their spouses know. And no, You're going to have to work. You're going to have to come and rescue us from going through motions because that's hard stuff, Lord. But you are worthy and you are good and you are able to set us free from that. So I ask that you There are people here who don't know you. They've never experienced salvation in Jesus. They've been trying to find it elsewhere. They've been pursuing other avenues of identity and fulfillment, and they're, they're tired, and they're fearful, and they're ashamed. Would you save them today? Would you just meet them right where they are and give them new life? Give them faith to step forward and just call out to you for your mercy. In all of this, may we all get a fresh view of your holiness and also your mercy. May we see you as a good father who is here waiting and longing to wrap your arms around our neck and welcome us home and take off our filth and put on clean garments. May we all see you as that and may we respond accordingly. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Hey, the altar's open. I'm going to ask community group leaders, anybody who's here as a leader, would you come forward and hang out on the walls? I believe the Lord wants to stir today. It's up to you if you're going to respond. Hebrews says, hey, don't harden your heart. Today's the day of salvation. So community group leaders, prayer team, if you've been trained, come hang out along the walls. The, the altar's open. If you'd like to just pray on your own, you come right up here. If you'd like somebody to pray with you, you come and grab somebody's hand, somebody sitting next to you. Let's, let's respond to the Lord.